Welcome. Today we are going to talk about the crisis of authority in our nation. Whether you're talking about the President of the United States or Dad in the home, you'd have to be living under a rock to miss the fact that there is a general breakdown of trust for those in authority all across our society. So how are we as Christians supposed to respond? It's not an easy question to answer. As always, our conversation was entirely unscripted, so you're about to hear three Christian pastors have a real conversation about this important topic. I hope it's helpful. My guests today are Pastors Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Well, hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Hello, Lucas. Very well. Good. Thank you. Good. Good. Something that we talk about a lot at this church is authority. But the the truth is that it's not just this church that talks about authority. We, as a society, are talking about authority all the time. And so today I'd like to talk about authority. And I'd like to to start as a jumping off point with this book that I started reading recently titled The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, and it was published in June of 2014. I think he was a former CIA guy. It was published before Trump and seems to have been very prescient. It predicted a lot of stuff that happened with Trump. And so this edition is the second edition, and it actually has a chapter at the very end that's all about post-Trump. And so he actually says in the foreword, you really should read the last chapter first and then go back and read the book and read the last chapter again at the end. So I, I, I took him up on his uh, suggestion, and I'm reading the last chapter of the book to begin. And what strikes me is that he talks about things that we have been talking about for a long time. Like A lot of these things are just not new concepts to me, but what what is a bit striking is that he, it's, his analysis has, as far as I can tell, I've only through basically read the one chapter so far, is that he doesn't have in view at all the church or really religious life. It's all about, he, he clearly is a, is a guy who's kind of like an old school liberal, it seems to me. He, he liked the old liberal order. He talks a lot about democracy and the threat of uh, totalitarianism to democracy. And he, he's eager to think about why that's happening and try to essentially protect democracy. That's the thing he's trying to protect. But let me let me just share a few quotes from it, and I hope we can use it as a jumping off point, not to just to talk about authority and politics so much as to talk about authority and the church. So here's a few quotes. He says, the development of new information technologies, I believed, referring to the original edition of the book, had shattered the categories we inherited from the industrial, industrial age. So that's one quote. And then he goes on and says, the current elite class having lost its monopoly over information, has been stripped, probably forever, of the authorizing magic of legitimacy. Okay, going on, he says, uh, information was dispensed on the industrial model, top-down and one-to-many. And at this point, I started to think about the Protestant Reformation and the significance that everyone understands of the printing press in that whole Reformation. And so, people have been talking about the significance of the internet 
on and digital technology, information technology on society at large. Neil Postman has been talking about this. And of course, I've really appreciated Neil Postman and his work and certainly would recommend books like Amusing Ourselves to Death and Technopoly from Postman. He was he was very, very helpful in thinking through that stuff. But this it just seems to me that this isn't the first time this isn't the first time we've gone through this in our society, in the world. So there's that. Now Going forward, there's another quote that I thought was really interesting. He says, rather than chase after Nazis or other phantoms of history, those concerned with the future of democracy, again, what this particular author cares about especially, should fix their attention on that young man, on the nihilist who believes with passionate intensity that destruction and slaughter are by themselves a form of progress. And so, You'll hear in the news, for instance, people talking about the the nihilism of Trump and of Trump voters. But what struck me is there's a kind of nihilism in the church as well. And I I hope we get into that a little bit uh, later in this conversation. There's a kind of a young man who just wants to burn it all down with the church without recognizing it's, it's like that classic Chesterton thing. They want to destroy the fence, but they don't even know why the fence is there. And I'm suspicious that what they're going to get is much worse or far worse than anything they they could imagine. The final quote I have is, trust in news as an institution had imploded. News as a business had been the first casualty of the public's assault on the hierarchies of the industrial age. Uh, Now, the the value of of me reading that particular quote, though, is again to highlight the, the role of information here and that there is something about being the dispenser of truth that is connected with authority. Tying it back to the Protestant Reformation, it was very destabilizing to the whole of society for Bibles to be in the hands of the common people. And and we see a similar kind of an effect happening with the internet. So what, what we're seeing with this book is, like I said at the beginning, there's a crisis of authority. There's a crisis of authority. So Tim, I'd like to start with asking this question for you. You've studied the Protestant Reformation quite extensively and thought a lot about it. What are some of the similarities and differences that you see between what's going on today in the church and the Protestant Reformation? There's an article that has been published recently in the Atlantic Monthly, Mm -hmm. and uh, that article is very helpful at looking at the condition of our culture, our politics, the church, the home, everything today. Mm. The article's titled, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. It's by a guy named Tim Alberta, who grew up in a pastor's home. This is in Southeast Michigan, uh, where the article is mainly centered. And what he's talking about in this article is how the church has just become a political whore, you know, mm. and that some of it is liberal, some of it is conservative, some of it is trying to mediate the tension uh, it, it trends conservative theologically, but is trying to bring reason and truth back mm-hmm. to the conservative church from President Trump's uh, influence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the article gets so many things wrong. Mm. It labels abortion and sodomite marriage as political issues. Well, the mm-hmm. minute a guy does that in the Atlantic Monthly, you know you're dealing with somebody that doesn't have a clue. You know? yeah. His definition of post-millennialism is, is hilarious. Well, yeah, laughable. Yeah, it's laughable. But what he does a good job of is simply giving a narrative of two or really two kinds of churches. One church is 
historically very conservative and evangelical guy's been there for 20 or 30 years. And in the middle of COVID, he just decided I ain't going to go there. Mm. And so he began to try to bring reason and truth back to COVID in a conservative congregation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's been somewhat successful. He's lost some people. Some people that were interviewed are still on the edge with him because they think that if he's not belligerating on masks, he can't be trusted theologically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's another guy down in uh, Southeast Michigan who's just absolutely rabid. He started out with a hundred people after years in the pulpit, but then he said he was going to stay open against the health regulations. Now his church is what? A thousand, two thousand, fifteen hundred people. Yeah. yeah. And so he has a lot of quotes of this guy. Mm -hmm. And so that guy's the baddie Mm -hmm. and the other guy's the goodie. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're told to that, most of the evangelical church, he calls it evangelical. I don't even know the meaning of the word anymore. Right. If, yeah. But he says, this is the evangelical church. It's just gone absolutely stark raving mad mm-hmm. in the last six years. Okay. Yep. And I want to take us back from before President Trump was elected. I was having a conversation with my nephew. And so he was talking about, I think he was in NSA at the time. And President Trump was running for office. He had not been elected yet. Mm. And he was absolutely beside himself with excitement about President Trump possibly getting into office. Mm. Well, we were sitting in a room with a bunch of uh, people who were mainstream evangelicals and people who were, uh, shall we say, intensely liberal. Yeah. In fact, some who are from Washington, D.C. and intensely liberal. Yeah, yeah. And he was sort of oblivious to it, either that or he was being pugnacious because he was just talking in a normal tone of voice in this huge living room with yeah. a family reunion <laughs> about how excited he was about <laughs> President Trump. And it was like, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. What was interesting, though, is the reason he was excited about Donald Trump being elected as president was that he saw that president trump if he got elected was going to destroy the authority of the fourth estate Hmm. he was very focused on that was writing a paper about it how excellent it would be to destroy the hegemony of the fourth estate and the mainstream media over the truths that we live by okay that it would cause everything to change and wasn't that a good thing hasn't that been a good good well of course i was sitting there on the one hand, being delighted about the loss of authority by the fourth estate if it happened. Yeah. But it was already happening at that time. Right, right, know? newspapers. and. Yeah. But I said to him, you realize that you don't destroy any authority without destroying all authority. You take on the fourth estate and you just teach everybody that they're all liars and they all have their own political position. And of course, I'm not going to argue with that with the fourth estate. It's been established mm-hmm. for decades that the people that do it are, are completely ideological. What do you mean by the fourth estate? Uh, the media. Right, right. Yeah, the, the you know. You're, it's a term that came from the French Revolution yeah. or? They're, yeah, it's the dispensers of information, of news. You know, yeah. it's the it's the people that are talking heads, the script writers for them, mm-hmm. authors, the Burgers sociologist Peter and Bridget Berger, 
they labeled them uh, the information class. Okay. They're people that live by the tongue and the pen. Yeah, but if they're lying all the time and manipulating people, I mean, how could it not be a good thing to destroy, destroy their authority? Yeah. But I mean, you're not really asking that because you know it can be a bad thing to destroy their authority. Because you you want a good authority in that place. Yeah, well, you're not just attacking the New York Times. I, I used to read the New York Times r- regulars and and then I decided, no, I will not read it anymore. And you and I have had arguments about this because you still, you know. I glance at the headlines and well, very rarely no, I read no, an article. No. <laughs> but, but it's okay. I mean, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. kind of thing that you get into where I just had to discipline myself that I was not going to read it because they lie and lie and lie. Yeah, yeah. And every time I'd read an article, I would see how misleading they were to the readers in a sophisticated way. I grew up in an editor's home yeah. and an author's home. You know, reading the New Yorker, I know words, I know rhetoric, I know what people are doing, and it infuriated me, the deception of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it infuriated me, especially because they were the one magazine, the newspaper, that they would actually have transcripts of what had been said. So, Mm -hmm. if you're going to take on authority, you will hurt the father in the home the mother in the home over the children. You will hurt the husband over the wife. You will hurt the elders over the church. You will hurt, hurt the president over the nation, the governor over the state. There is absolutely no way to pick at one part of authority historically mm. without jeopardizing the trust of the sheep for all authorities. Okay. And so, for instance, when everybody went wacko over COVID and said, we can't trust our government, we can't trust health officials or anything, mm-hmm. it wasn't just the people out there. It was their own physician in their church who formerly they had trusted, who all of a sudden they didn't trust him anymore mm-hmm. because authorities of a fabric. Mm-hmm. And if you pull on authority here, it comes loose over here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Authority is of a fabric so no i don't trust the media Mm -hmm. no some of our listeners might not understand the idea of what happened to the fourth estate and how it got challenged and they they have maybe spent all their time in uh the time after the advent of the the tearing down of the berlin wall of information holding right and so how long oh, you mean how like, long ago was monica Lewinsky? I yeah know. yeah i mean we're talking 20 it would have been the late 90s so yeah i mean we're talking 25 years ago mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Dr- matt drudge a a online blogger news blog barricaded himself into his apartment after putting up on his online blog the information about and broke the story of the president's mm-hmm. sexual immorality. So you're you're pointing out that many of our listeners may not even remember the time they when may not know what Walter Cronkite or whatever. Yeah, they may not but know that. A why time, does that matter? Well, because then the, everything they grew up with is maybe a trust of themselves and the age mm. they live in now. Because they can just say whatever they want. They don't realize that something happened before, that there was something before where that information was controlled by a group of people. 
and that authority managed it good for good or for bad. They mm-hmm. managed that mm-hmm. information. None of the major news sources were breaking the story about Monica Lewinsky. It was known. They all knew it. Nobody was going to break the story. And some guy from his apartment broke the story on his website. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to go further back than that. We have to go back to the Watergate where Woodward and Bernstein gained an incredible amount of authority for the fourth estate by breaking the news Ah, about Watergate. And Mm. so we have seen growth in trust, decline in trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, them breaking the news about Watergate had an incredible impact on the trust of the country for the president Mm. and the presidency. You can't attack a president without attacking the presidency. And recently we've seen this same thing with the Supreme Court. Mm. Thomas has done something he's never done before where he's come out and said, this is not the court that I used to be on. And it's everybody knows he's attacking the Chief Justice Roberts. Mm. And Roberts did not handle the American uh, Obamacare. He, at the last minute, forged yep. a compromise that allowed it to not be overturned. Yep. There's residual resentment, but now it's coming out public. Now, I read an article the other day that somebody thinks, no, this was intentional. And it is the Supreme Court, for the first time in our memory, going outside of the court. All right. Mm. And we've seen it in the last couple of days with the release of the report about the Southern Baptist Convention, the executive committee, committee, yeah, where again, an outside reporting agency has done an investigation and have said for you know for decades there has been a complete lack of integrity in handling of sexual harassment and the abuse and particularly the abuse of children mm-hmm. in the Southern Baptist Convention by the the top leaders of the denomination not just doing it themselves with Judge Pressler who was Paige Patterson's right-hand guy mm-hmm. you know, well I shouldn't say right-hand they plotted the conservative reformation but also covering over covering up other people's sexual abuse so here you have an outside authority hired to come in being a consultant and critique the top leaders of the largest protestant denomination in the united states mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. the minute that happens all pastors and all elders and all men okay yep. lose authority and so every time you have a reform movement that comes in and says, no, this but is... you wouldn't say that about a, a husband apologizing in the home. In other words, we believe that it's good in that it builds a, a man's authority to have integrity and to say to his wife, I'm sorry, to say to his children, I'm sorry for something. Yeah, remember when, he, when I was talking to him about attacking the fourth estate, if mm-hmm. President Trump came into office, remember that... I was very excited about the possibility of the liars in the media Mm. losing their authority. Mm -hmm. What I said to him is, though, you have to understand that this is not all good. This is a double-edged sword. What we're going to end up with is a decline of all authority in the country, and the fourth estate really should be viewed with some trust. And so if that trust is absolutely blown to smithereens, we are going to lose a major part of authority. Inevitably, because of authority is of a fabric, all it will mean is the transfer of authority to some other place. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be a loss of authority. Okay, that point I think is worth just sitting on just for a second and, and talking about because I've started to talk about it 
like the conservation of energy, the law of the mm-hmm. conservation of energy uh, cannot be created or destroyed. It just sort of changes forms and shapes and, and whatever. And, and it's the same with with authority. It's, and you've taught me that, uh, but I think it's right. It's right. It doesn't go away. Authority doesn't go away. It gets transferred. And so who, who is authority being transferred to? Well, currently the most serious threat is not COVID, not public health authorities. It's almost laughable the way Mm. I almost feel like the wicked totalitarian aspires in our country came up with COVID and masks and vaccinations so that they could get our eye off the ball. Mm. We've been looking at the birdie for the last three years and it's sad The real issue in America today and in the West is the the catastrophic growth in the authority of the state. Mm -hmm. That's the real issue. Now, people would say, well, that's what we're talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, the real threat is the loss of the ability to confess Christ in the public square. That's what we've been losing for years. And that's what Schlossberg said a long yeah, time ago, yeah, idols for and destruction. Idols for destruction. And people don't realize that when we fight against evangelical publishers taking the word man, the word father, the word brothers mm-hmm. out of scripture, taking the word effeminate out of scripture, mm-hmm. taking out the word Jews and replacing it with leaders. Yeah, you're talking about uh, Bible translations. Bible translations. They, they take it's all been those words so out. clear for decades yeah, what's one, going on about the the importance of language. And so mm-hmm. if language only has a meaning that's not hurtful and that everybody is okay with it, mm-hmm. then we have lost the ability to disagree. We've lost the ability to confess Christ. And so to me, the most significant news last week was not the SBC. The most significant news was that Muslim soccer mm-hmm. football player over in Italy or France who declined to wear a jersey. His kit had uh, it was required for that game. It had to have a rainbow on it. Mm. He's Muslim. He's not going to promote sodomy. Okay. Right. So he didn't play. What was fascinating was that the response of everybody was the man is an enemy of the people, which is Ibsen's phrase, but it comes from communism yeah. and it comes from Stalin. Mm. Okay. He was called a criminal and he should be prosecuted as a criminal for refusing to salute the flag of sodomy and LGBTQism. Okay, mm-hmm. now that is totalitarianism because that man is not even allowed to play unless he salutes a flag. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is the most serious attack upon our Western democratic traditions. Mm-hmm. It is the most serious attack upon Christian confession. You know, our book. The grace of shame being right. censored by the company that has now the monopoly on publishing in the Western world, which is Amazon. Right. And yeah. Well, I, I just want some of our listeners may not have heard this, but the grace of shame, Tim, a book written by Tim a few years ago, and Jurgen and, and Joseph. yeah, that's right, Jurg, uh, Pastor Jurgen and, and Pastor Joseph um, has been removed from Amazon. And as far as we know, as far as I know, there's been no explanation for it from them but no, it's we've just, tried we've tried to they, they try to get respond. to the bottom of it right but it's just gone it's just gone you can't buy it on amazon right now and like he said it's it's there's no appealing and amazon has a monopoly on this and so uh, you can get the book on warhornmedia.com i do recommend you grab a copy little little plug there mm-hmm. uh, but what we're trying to explain is authorities of a fabric 
you cannot get rid of authority because God has put it in the universe. Okay. What you can do is make it all slide to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, but I want to bring it back then to my original question. And maybe the question is just too big about for us. About the Reformation. Yeah, because that's always what's in the back of my okay, mind. Okay, so let's think talk about, about the Reformation. Yeah. People have a very truncated view of the Reformation. What they think of the Reformation as being is the recovery of the doctrine of justification, which Packer calls the formal principle. Then they think about, well, yeah, and to do that, we had to recover sola scriptura, sola fide, sola grace, you know. Mm -hmm, so they have mm -hmm. the five solas, and they think that was the Reformation. Yeah. That was secondary. The primary reason for the Reformation was that those men who were had seated themselves in the seat of Moses, yep, okay, yep. is everybody hearing me here? Yeah, yeah. All right, were destroying the souls of the sheep. They huh. were destroying them. And they were destroying them so that they could hire Michelangelo mm. to do the Sistine Chapel. I mean, there's a, there's a direct correlation between the sale of indulgences by Tetzel and the building of St. Peter's Basilica and the work of Michelangelo and all that art that we want to act like we're sophisticated for liking. Mm. Doesn't mean I'm against art. Yeah, yeah. You know? But the point is, at the time of the Reformation, men like Luther, he was destroyed by the pursuit of righteousness that would be sufficient mm. for him to earn merit. And the church taught merit, and the church said our seven sacraments are how you become deserving of, you know, the beatific vision of heaven, of whatever you want to call it, okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Luther despaired, and then he discovered. And his discovery, we want to think of as theological, but it was very relational, if you yeah. know anything about Luther. It was a discovery that Bucer, Martin Bucer, who was Calvin's best friend, Strasbourg, you know, if you read his book on pastoral care, he says, listen, in order to be saved, you have to be in the church and shepherded. You need the church to care for your soul if you are going to go to heaven. He almost says it that clearly. He says that's why the Reformation had to happen. We had to take you away from priests who are bastardizing everything they touched, everything, mm. everything, not just indulgences, but the doctrines of Scripture. They had the Bibles chained to the pulpits. They wouldn't let laymen preach because they laughed in the Vatican, mm. you know, that St. Francis and Peter Waldo, you know, that they could think that they could understand Scripture without our sophisticated training, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. So there's this humongous authority, right. humongous, the Holy Roman Empire, the Vatican, the money, the sale of indulgences, everything is going on. And the reformers said, Christ died for his sheep. Those sheep need to know the gospel. All right, here I stand, I can do no others. Those men loved those for whom Christ died. Yeah, I, I, I recognize this in the conversation we had earlier today in what you were saying about the Reformation. It, it really... I never thought of it that way precisely, but because it's very easy for us, especially in the Reformed tradition, to think of the, the theological points that were rediscovered yeah. and the doctrinal points, but really, it's a, it was a reformation of love, motivated by love. And pastoral care. And pastoral care, And the, right. the theology is what's necessary to unburden souls despairing of eternal life mm -hmm. and of being able 
to be to see you have to come back to the God who forgives sins, mm. not the God that has uh, you know the minute the coin sp- the soul springs free from purgatory, purgatory's invented. You do the seven set, you do all this crud, all this crud, yep. and they're still not able to say they're Christians and that God has adopted them as sons and mm. daughters of God. And so at that very same time gutenberg the printing press wittenberg had almost half of the entire economy of the city was printing Hmm. half wow okay and so they were able to go directly to the people without having to pass through the church it was unheard of yeah and so it wasn't just of books you know we read the bondage of the will we read calvin's institutes and it was pamphleteering Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. was like these it was the internet of the time Mm -hmm. okay yeah and it was a tremendous gift to the people of god so that they could hear the truth without it passing through the people who wanted to make a profit off it. Mm. This is why I'm so opposed to the Gospel Coalition. This is why I've been so happy that Christian publishers have lost their hegemony over the exchange of books. We can publish a book today without having to go to the legacy publishers. I grew up with those publishers. I knew them. My dad was, my father-in-law was, and I knew the way they made decisions often was based upon what famous people would commend this book, Mm -hmm. and famous people are always about their money and their fame. Mm -hmm. They're never about the people. They're never about the souls. They, they, they act as if they are. Mm-hmm. And so the sheep love them and go to their conferences and everything. Yeah. So my point is to say that at the time of the Reformation, there is a strong parallel between the printing press, the pamphleteering, the books, the dissemination of information all of a sudden being democratized, mm-hmm. and the internet. The well, internet the, has blown up legacy publishers. And the crisis of authority. And it is. It's the same crisis. But then you ask yourself, do we want a perpetual reformation? Now, everybody that's reformed is going to say, yes, the church reformed, always, reform. always yes. reforming. Yeah. But of course, it's it's a joke. The church isn't reforming right now. <laughs> it's no. deforming, to quote a Roman Catholic, Chesterton, yeah. you know, in the matter of reformation as opposed to deformation. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, that's one of his famous lines. Uh-huh. And so what we have to realize is that a good ultramontane Roman Catholic is going to look at the reformation and say, yeah, a bunch of radical rebels against mm. authority mm-hmm. destroyed the loving tender care of the church for the souls under her care okay that's what they say yeah and so we say no 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 they loved god and they read the bible and they refused to you know and so we've got all that down but then when it comes to today nobody wants anybody criticizing the institutional authorities of evangelicalism in the pca Mm -hmm. you know i was criticizing carolyn custis james and her her sidekick frank her husband you know i was criticizing what they were saying in the in the chapel services at covenant and i had one of the top leaders of the pca call me up and tell me that i was not being loyal Mm. why well because i was questioning an establishment authority in the pca and i said you know my understanding of loyalty is that you protect the capital of an organization Mm. not the names and the numbers 
And so if you go through history, you're going to see again and again and again contests where in order to do reform, you have to destroy confidence and authority on the part of the sheep. But you have to do it in such a way that you don't destroy the ability of the sheep to submit to authority. And so it's really interesting that Jesus says, they sit in the seat of Moses. He says, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and Mm. to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves Mm. in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, obey, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Hmm. And so Jesus, even there, shows us the importance when we lead reform movements mm-hmm. of not destroying authority, not destroying the ability. And I kept saying during COVID, if you're going to teach your people to despise the tyranny of the government and to despise the medical authorities and to despise their governors and their mayors, Mm -hmm. what you have to realize is that you are also teaching your wives to despise their husbands and the patriarch to despise his elders. Mm -hmm. You cannot simply say, be belligerent and disrespectful and scream and protest and get busted and do everything you can against the civil authority and then teach your wife to not question when you tell her to do something. Mm. This is the most ironic situation where you had some of the most patriarchal, you know, authoritarian dudes destroying any submission to government. Mm. And I'm not... A fan of government. They're slaughtering babies, okay? I say no union with abortionists, okay? I'd love for there to be some effort to get rid of the coasts in the United States of America. (laughs) No, seriously. But we have to realize that the angels, you know, head coverings, Mm. the angels observe the respect and submission to authority that there is in human beings. Hmm. They observe it. You're getting that from uh, just just from people, First Corinthians, you yeah, know, yeah, where they just Corinthians. where they say, and because of the angels, mm-hmm. and it's very clear there that what you're dealing with is the angels are observing, mm-hmm. and you know, I just read in one of the minor prophets where it's God rebukes the devil, and so even rebuking the deceiver is something that is reserved for an authority that is at the proper level of the deceiver and is not for mere mortals. Well, rebelling against authority is just basic awful. I mean, God, there is so much in the scripture about our our need to submit ourselves to mm-hmm. authority. Yeah. And that authority is, that submission is in direct relation to faith. Mm. It's in direct, absolute relation to faith. The authority of the church at the time of the Reformation, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, what did they have? Well, they had all of the authority. Mm-hmm. Were they taking responsibility for the people? They would say they were. They would say that today in many respects, as you just said a few minutes ago. They might say the same thing today, that yes, they take responsibility for the people. But in actuality, when you look at it, when the reformers started doing their work, they didn't start the work by 
establishing by by hanging a shingle out in front of their house saying priest. the new authority yeah the new priest what they did is they started their work by dying taking responsibility for the people because the, the people, theses, the I people mean, were dying and they wanted to see the souls of the people. Yeah, protected. and if you read about the 95 Theses, what you realize is that Martin Luther is trying to protect the souls. Read the Theses. Read yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, Because he is so concerned that people think that they don't have to repent. They just need to do the business. You know, go look at the relics on, mm. you know, go, uh, go on a pilgrimage, you know, do auricular confession or whatever the equivalent, give the, give the money into the, and so Luther just destroys the mercantile aspect of the church mm-hmm. because the priests and the Vatican are using that to bring money, to build St. Peter's Basilica, to hire Michelangelo to live with gold, to have the best wine, the best meat, to have the robes, to have everything. And it requires them to lie to people and tell them that if they put money in this box, Hmm. that they and their loved ones who are in purgatory will be saved eternally. Isn't what we want, though, isn't what we want that authority the the person in authority would actually have the appropriate measure of the taking of responsibility for those who he's an authority over. Isn't that what we're looking for? But what we see so often in this fight is that people in authority aren't taking responsibility for the people they have authority for. They may have any kind, every kind of motivation. I mean, it, it fits in, in every place of authority, in every sphere of authority, this fits. Because people who are in authority may have any kind of motivation to get whatever they might possibly want out of their uh, holding that position of authority. It might be money, it might be power, it might be fame, sex. you know, might be sex, might be whatever. And then, but if they were actually fulfilling the role that they were supposed to fulfill in that authority, let's assume that authority is a good one. It's worth having an existence, right? That that they would actually do the thing that would serve the people that they had authority over. Yeah. Whether they're a father, whether they're a church father, yeah. whether they're a civil father. And so Luther, uh, Lucas asked earlier, w- are you saying that a father shouldn't say he was wrong to his family? Will that undercut his authority? No. Yeah. It will inestimably build his authority. Yeah, that's right. And the reason is that man is responsible, and his responsibility makes him realize that he has to take away from his children the perception that what he just did is godly, is right, and what they should do when they become a father. In other words, he takes his responsibility so seriously that he knows that he has to correct himself in front of his children if he is going to be a good father to his children. Otherwise, they're going to be misled by him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so much of the tension in this is that evil is that sin and wickedness is. Yeah, you can't because every one of these spheres of authority as this as this is going on is always being tempted, always being pressured by evil, by sin. And that those how we how we deal with that sin but in the in each sphere of authority, how we deal with that sin between the spheres of authority, all of this seems to come 
all of our all of our conversation seems to come around those issues. How do we deal with the sin? How did the reformers deal with the sin of the authority at the time? It was a sin. Well, one of the ways they dealt with it is Calvin and his company pastors got together every month and confessed their sins to each other yes. and disciplined each other. Yes. In other words, again, it comes back to our love of celebrity status and power and yeah. fame. In the evangelical church, we have just completely given ourselves to men who are unbelievably arrogant and proud and wealthy. And when anybody raises this issue, everybody thinks, well, but they've done more good than you'll ever do in a hundred lifetimes. And it's like, no, actually, the man that cares for his sheep is never creating a cult of himself. My dad used to say, you want to follow a leader who tells you not to follow him. Mm. And, he, and that's not how he put it. What he would say is you never want to follow a leader who tries to create dependence on him. Hmm. I feel like that needs to be opened up just because um, there's a kind of false humility that's very common today with yeah, leaders. Yeah, the wounded healer. Well, the wounded healer, yeah, don't look to me. Yeah, I'm just broken like you I'm are. I'm just broken like you are, right. And so how is that different? How is what well, you Well, the guy that does that, it's he's what he's doing is he's flattering you. Mm. It doesn't seem obvious, but that's just flattering. Yeah, he doesn't actually mean, don't read my book, don't look at me. What he means is, listen to me and look at me because... I will never threaten you with the law of God and the wrath of mm. God and the truth of his word because I know how often I fail and I don't like to be confronted with that. And so I know you don't want to be confronted like that. And I know how you want to be scratched and look at me. I'm just <laughs> a wounded healer just like you. Yeah. Whereas Calvin says this, and it's one of my favorite quotes about the ministry, about eldership, pastoring, deacons, older women in the church. He says, God could have sent angels. Hmm. And he's talking about preachers. Oh, yeah. See, that's... And he says God did not send angels. Mm. Well, any pastor laughs. <laughs> I mean, we of all course, laugh at that, you know, because we know we're not angels, actually. <laughs> and, and, and we think maybe our wives know that, too. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I remember reading that and just, I realized... Not that I wasn't an angel, I knew that. Yeah. What I realized is that all the narrative of the conservative Christian church is that in fact pastors are angels mm. and that they are the one guy that gets it right and that the pastor is the one you pay to be pious to prove to the rest of us it doesn't pay to be pious. Mm -hmm. And so you put them up on a pedestal and they never make an ass of themselves and they never use the word ass actually. <laughs> and, and there they are. Mm -hmm. Every woman wishes she had a man who like she that. was married to, like her pastor, because he actually is not subverbal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he actually has some <laughs> awareness of relation. Oh, if I could just be married to my pastor, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Well, Calvin goes on and says, God sent men, sinful men. And then he says, God sent sinful men who are your inferiors. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's like, Yes, 
don't you feel that way in terms of being a pastor? Mm-hmm. You feel like you're the inferior to your people, and yet you have to preach. You have to do. And he says, you know why he sent inferiors? It's still Calvin. Mm-hmm. He says he sent inferiors because it's wonderfully unifying to the people of God mm-hmm. for all of them to be under a man who is their inferior and have to humble themselves and submit to him. Wow. Never thought about that before. It it really is connects very well with something that was observed earlier today in our in our uh, pastors meeting, thinking about the tension between Roman Catholics and Protestants over the Protestant Reformation and the battle over authority. Um, there is a kind of air that is typical for Protestants who say that who are inclined to believe that the Protestant Reformation was just about doctrine, and finally now I have the Bible so that I can I read it for myself, Luther and I can trust my own brain. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that that idea is not in Scripture. It mm-hmm. just isn't. It, it, we are supposed to read truth and learn it and, and inculcate it, have it get deep into our bones, but in what we see in Scripture is that it's it's like all of it all of those words are supposed to be lived together it's life together you know bonhoeffer life together and there's this this assumption of authority and so i don't quite know maybe maybe you guys you men can help me i don't quite know how how exactly how to say what i'm getting at but there is so the Roman Catholics would say, oh, the Protestant Reformation, they destroyed authority and they need to return and submit themselves. And what we're saying is, no, we didn't destroy authority, but what we're actually saying is that it has to take on flesh and bones. Well, I would say they did destroy authority. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. It went they somewhere had else. To. They it, had to. Yeah. In order to establish a new church, new polity, new doctrine, in order to recover the New Testament gospel, they had to destroy the legitimacy. They didn't want to. But when Rome hardened against them and then mm-hmm. had the Council mm-hmm. of Trenton actually anathematize them, well, they didn't, that wasn't their goal to destroy the authority of Rome, but they had to do it. And one other thing, the reason that you have such intense attacks upon Anabaptists by the reformers Mm. is because immediately that destruction of authority spread to the government. So the Anabaptists in particular were very almost anarchist. Well, yeah, Anabaptists today would not want us to, to use the word Anabaptist, but yeah, it was Munzer and his pitchfork revolution. It was mm-hmm. the whole movement was like, yeah, Rome to hell with Rome and to hell with our rulers and to hell with you if you tell us to submit and and the whole thing. And that is the function of destroying the largest authority in the late Middle Ages, late mm-hmm. medieval period, which was the time of the Reformation. It had to be done. It had to be done, yeah. but immediately the reformers started cultivating a respect for authority, defending authority, mm. and the reformers would discipline anyone who, when they were visiting relatives or something, would go to mass at a Roman Catholic church. So it's not like they're just done with authority and each man does that which is right in his own eyes. Immediately they began to build back the authority of of a biblical church. But then, w- go ahead, Max. It's worth, I think, considering that 
we look at this from the perspective that the reformers or the reformation destroyed the authority of Rome. Mm-hmm. But I think you could as well look at it as I've heard you refer, refer, refer to before, Tim, is that no, actually Rome destroyed Rome's yeah, authority. Yeah, yeah. Rome. How? It's not that the, it's not that the, it's not that the reformers or the reformed church left the church. It's just that the establishment left the church. They they wrote the the Trent documents, mm. and when they wrote those documents, they were making a declaration against God's very word, mm. and it, they were deviating from something in such an awful way that they left the church. They could have listened to Luther. Rebuke. They could have listened. To Calvin, they could have listened to the reformers at the time instead of burning them at the stake, but they wouldn't hear it because they were just saying, "No, we are uh, God's. Authority. We are God's authority. Mm-hmm. We are. We're the ones that are in place." And it didn't matter to them. And so, uh, it's an interesting way to look at it because it actually gets us to see. I mean, some of those same things are true today. We we have authorities that exist, and the, the authorities that exist don't take responsibility. We look at them. We have a responsibility ourselves to uh, submit ourselves to the authorities in our lives. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the authorities in our lives go so far as to betray their own function. Mm. And I think I think when they do, everybody sees it. I think that was why the Reformation came with such fire and power because it was ordained by God, but it also came with such power because the people saw it. You know, you guys have have talked, we talked in the meeting this morning about the fact that the Reformation was about love and about pastoral care and about the souls of the people. Mm-hmm. The people saw it just like the people who were living in Jesus' time heard him speak. They knew that what he was saying to them was life to them. When he was asked, when he asked him, are you going to leave me? Well, who has the words of life but you? Yeah, who else are we going to go? Where are we going to go? So then, but today, we're not talking about a church reformation. We're having a crisis of authority, but it seems as if the church is just. No, I think, I think we're in the midst of a humongous rebellion against all authority. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing in the church is exactly what we're seeing on the level of politics mm-hmm. and in the home. Mm-hmm. And so this last Sunday, in trying to encourage us to recover the authority of women who are older over younger women in our church, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. talking about Phoebe in yep. Romans 16, yep. I was trying to warn people that our tendency is going to be to protect male authority and to feel that any office, any exercise mm. of authority of women over other women is going to make us afraid because we've just recovered the authority of men. Right, like, a th- like and, it's a threat. And, and so you look at the, again, all the authority has been taken over by the government. The government has destroyed the church. The government has destroyed the home. There are many policies, not to mention statements by governing authorities, which absolutely destroy the foundations of the home and the church, which formerly were mediating institutions. The government depended upon them. But the government now has a voracious appetite Mm -hmm. for all authority, Mm -hmm. and it views every father 
as a competitor, just like Stalin and the communists, just mm. like him. It views the church as a competitor. It will not work in harness with the church in controlling some of the most intimate and horrible crimes that there are in our society. It used to be that the church actually disciplined sexual abuse, disciplined incest. We mm. see it in Corinthians. But today, the government, if you go to the government about incest in your church, they want to know whether you waited five minutes before you reported it. Mm. And then they still won't do anything. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not like we jeopardize their ability to do anything. And so when you look at the issue of the church and the home, the government is taking over the functions. We've got no-fault divorce. A man's wife leaves him. He goes into court. He's got a woman judge. He's got a woman ad litem. He's got a woman defense attorney, a woman uh, defending his wife. He's completely emasculated, and that's the point. That's actually the point. Mm -hmm. And then if you read the people that are exposing the sexual abuse cases in the church, I won't mention the name, right? It's women. They hate men. Now, there is a certain type of man that occasionally they'll puff, but he's always a servant leader. He's not a man who has stood for anything. And so you see the loss of authority of the church and the home. Mm -hmm. And then you see people publicizing with the SBC all the betrayals of the men of the church, and it should never have happened that way. Much of the scandal of the SBC report, Southern Baptist Convention, is the fact that the men who had the obligation of disciplining mm -hmm. their fellow pastors yep. refused to do it and instead covered it up. Well, the lesson that people are going to learn is not let's make sure that we have somebody who's the president of the SBC is going to discipline, you know, men and women that molest children. Mm -hmm. The lesson is going to be we have to take away the authority from anybody. And if it has to be held by somebody, make sure it's a woman. Yeah. That's, that's really the lesson. And the idea that women are going to do a better job of protecting children than men is laughable. Women will be insanely jealous and protective of their own children and will not mind sacrificing other children if their children get ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I know people are going to be, you probably cut that out. <laughs> no. um, I want to say one other thing about this issue of authority that's so helpful. Yeah. If you're going to talk about authority, you have to realize what authority is. Mm. All right. What is authority? Thanks so much for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.